This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. anyone doesn't know, I am speaking to Dr. Dale Bredesen, who is the foremost thought leader really in the world of Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. So Dale and I have been chatting for a while now about some of the things that we're both passionate about. And usually I do the introduction at the beginning, but we just jumped into it. So we'll just carry on. So maybe if you don't mind, just for those that are listening to us. Mm. So I've been obviously following your work forever. And have heard you speak many times. And I just took some time last night to go through and I I picked up on a TED talk you did in Manhattan Beach. And there was something that you said that really was so poignant for me, just so, so incredible. And it was the point where you made when you said, this is the last generation that will be afraid of Alzheimer's disease. That was the first comment. And the second comment was that we will eradicate Alzheimer's. Now, that's even for me who work in a space and I've had this deep optimism about preventing Alzheimer's, managing it, reversing it. That was an extraordinary, extraordinary comment. So I would love for us just to jump in right there because I want to really get a sense of where that's coming from. But also this podcast was really never meant to be a clinical genotype, phenotype podcast. It was really about extraordinary individuals like yourself who have challenged a paradigm or challenged a discourse, a narrative around something that is in healthcare. And in this case, you have completely turned on its head this idea that Alzheimer's is this inevitable set in stone cognitive decline that we will not be able to manage, prevent, reverse. And it reminded me in that in that TEDx talk that you have really completely challenged this idea. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that if you don't mind. Absolutely. So let's just start with the current standard of care, which is, as you know, completely backward. If you look at the research, it really is Everything that's being done in a standard memory care center in the, quote, centers of excellence is completely backward. It it misunderstands what the disease is. So, number one, they tell you don't come in early because there's nothing that can be done. Number two, they say we don't know what the cause of Alzheimer's is, implying that there's a cause. Number three, they say it's called Alzheimer's disease. But they don't say, well, maybe it's many, many diseases, but it's just Alzheimer's disease. Number four, they say, we're continuing to look for the cure and we're testing drug after drug. We're out there. We're putting billions of dollars into these trials, trial after trial after trial after trial. You know, then they say, well, there's no hope. You come in one of the patients uh, we just in the book that I just published called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's, seven people wrote their stories about what had happened on the protocol that we developed and how they got better and you know, what kind of got back into society. 
you know, one of them went to a neurologist years ago when she first was getting diagnosed. And she said, you know, I found out that I'm 4'4", I'm having some cognitive problems. Can you just help me? If At least if I could stay where I am. I'm not doing great, but I'm not doing that badly. And he said, he looked at her. This is an expert on Alzheimer's and said to her, good luck with that. Oh, my God. So, you know, I feel a little bit as if if you were trying to say, okay, we want to study why planes crash. And, you know, you start looking at this and people said, well, we're going to see when they crash. Could we then throw on water really quickly? Okay, could we now take the wheels off really quickly? Can we make let's make the ambulances get there quicker? No, let's start before they crash. Okay, and they're like, well, wait a minute. No, that's not the way we do it. You have to wait for them to crash. Then we're going to see what we can do. That's kind of the way it's been in Alzheimer's. So we did, as you know, 30 years, published 200, over 220 peer-reviewed papers on what is this thing? So I used to go to meetings and say, we want to know what is the fundamental nature of Alzheimer's? And people would look at me as if I were crazy. You know, like, what do you mean the fundamental? It's Alzheimer's disease. What do you mean? And I think this, again, has been fundamentally what has been missed by so many Alzheimer's researchers. They want to say it's about misfolded proteins, and we're now going to get rid of the misfolded proteins. And they're missing the fact this is a network dysfunction. And so you have to ferret out all the pieces of the network, and then you have to alter the network behavior. Interestingly, I mean, ultimately, it is an insufficiency. That's the fundamental nature of this disease, is that the supply does not meet the demand for a chronic period. And so you involute, which is kind of simplistic. And yet everyone keeps coming back to its, you know, its prions, its tau. They want to find one thing. One one drug, one thing. Yeah. The most famous neuropathologist in Alzheimer's said that they've now identified that it's not just amyloid and tau, but it is also alpha-synuclein in the majority of the cases, and also TDP-43. So he says the way to treat this disease is to get antibodies to suck out all of those four proteins. So what we found is that saying that someone has Alzheimer's is like saying that you have fever. It should not be followed by a period. Fever due to what? Alzheimer's due to what? And in fact, when you start to look at the nature of this, and you can you know, just what you've been talking about with the genetics. You can ferret out the pathways. You see that there are people that have more of a of an inflammatory type, more of an atrophic type. These all are going through a pathway that leads to all the things that we think about, the production of amyloid, the phosphorylation of tau. You know, if you look at that, what that really is, is that you're changing fundamentally your brain mode from a mode of growth and maintenance, synaptoblastic mode, to a synaptoclastic mode, which is a protective downsizing mode. You make amyloid, by the way, amyloid and tau are both antimicrobial peptides. That's not a coincidence. Guess what else? When you phosphorylate your tau, what does it do? It pops off your microtubules so that you can pull back. So these things all make sense when they're all brought together. But when you see them in isolation, you say, let's get rid of that amyloid because it looks like bad stuff. But you try time after time after time, getting rid of amyloid does not help. There's a reason that it's there. So again, everything is backwards. One of the biggest things that's backwards is that if you look at the four stages, 
people have focused almost exclusively on the third and fourth, which are MCI and Alzheimer's. Prior to MCI, you have about a decade of SCI, subjective cognitive impairment, where you're still testing fine on your cognitive tests, usually, and yet you're you know very treatable at that time. And we find that virtually 100% of those people can get better. And of course, before that, it's all about, as you said, prevention. And so what I was saying is that, you know, we have two daughters who are now, in, one's just turning 30 and the other one just turned 32. And their generation does not have to worry about this problem. They're already understanding what are the right things to do. How do you prevent the problem? If you have start to have cognitive changes, get in early. This backward way that we say of wait and wait. And I see these in doctor's notes all the time, you know, not doing that badly, come back next year. Oh my gosh. So saying that someone has mild cognitive impairment is like telling them they have mildly metastatic cancer. It's a what we call MCI should be called advanced stage Alzheimer's. It's the third of four stages. And so we have to change the entire way we think about this, the entire way we treat it. And if we simply do that, this is not going to be a problem. Literally, Alzheimer's disease is now optional. And I know that sounds crazy. And yet, if you just look at the data, if you just look at what this disease is, you can see that that is indeed the case. And interestingly, we haven't had a single person yet who went on prevention, did the right things, and then developed dementia. So we're actually looking at whether we can come out with a guarantee and say, look, if you go on this and you get this, you know, then you'll essentially it'll be dementia insurance. We also see virtually everyone with SCI, again, if they do the right things, you go through, you identify the biochemistry that's contributing, and then you, you, you target this appropriately, then virtually all of them get better. Now, it's more of a challenge when they get to that third stage, MCI, but we just posted in MedArchive our clinical trial where we had people who had MCI or early fourth stage Alzheimer's, and 84% of them improved their scores, not just slowed the decline, actually improved their scores. So just you know, strikingly better than anything published in the past. And then, of course, the final stage with Alzheimer's, we see you know, many people improve, but it's much harder. There is this interesting, there's some sort of a threshold there, which we still don't understand, where it gets much harder after a certain point. And so, again, there's no reason to wait all those years. The window of opportunity is huge. And most exciting, we're now working, as you know, only 5% of Alzheimer's is truly familial Alzheimer's, the APP, PS1, and PS2 mutations. We're working with a couple in the family with APP mutations. And everybody in that particular family gets fairly severe Alzheimer's between 39 and 51. The older sister is now 54, and she's doing well. And she's been on this for eight years now. Now, I told her I want to come to her 70th birthday if I'm still alive, because I hope that we'll be able to take that group as well. That's there. As you know, there's been no success with the APP mutations, but we'll see. No one's ever done the right thing before. It's possible that we can actually make a difference in people, even with the APP or PS1 or 2 mutations. Time will tell. And uh, with her, even we, we didn't get started and she didn't come to me until 2013, her doctor actually drove her down from Oregon. 
And at that time, she had already massive accumulation of amyloid within her brain. And yet she's done very well. So my hope is with all the families, we get them started at 25 instead of 45 years old. And we may be able to make it so that they don't have this problem. So I I think that this is a very exciting time. And there's no question the genetics, and as you indicated, it's about the pathways that are contributing are going to play a huge role in getting optimal biochemistry for each person. You know, I don't know if you saw a paper that came out. It wasn't specifically on cognitive, but I think you would find it really, I'm sure you saw it. If not, I'll send it to you. But it came out in August 2020 by Fayed. And what they did was they looked at monogenic versus polygenic because they said, like, you're getting these high penetrant monogenic genetic variations that are really exactly as you described now, kind of driving like APP driving. And yet the penetrance is so variable. So we know that in like, for example, in the BRCA gene and breast cancer, where 5% are your monogenic breast cancers and 95% are polygenic, you're getting, you're getting this variance that you can have a, I hate the word mutation. So I'm going to use the word variation. Mutation is just too negative for me. Um, You know, someone who's got like a 40% penetrance, which means that their chances of actually developing breast cancer in relation to their BRCA gene is extremely low versus an 80%. And what they showed in this paper was that it was, of course, the decisions they're making, diet, lifestyle, supplement, exposures, but it was the polygenic environment that was determining the expression of the monogenic variant. And oh, that if, it's an amazing paper. So they looked at familial hypercholesterolemia, they looked at BRCA, and they looked at one other, and they showed how that polygenic kind of variations would determine whether the penetrance would be higher or lower on that spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that the same must apply in the space that you're working in, that why one individual, so obviously all the changes you're making in your program, but also that polygenic space, whether it's in glucose and insulin, cognitive, hormones, cellular systems is determining whether those genes are going to express or not. So I think that for me is one of the most interesting areas that we're going to see. But I also want to share just a quick personal story about Alzheimer's. So I have a very strong family history. My father's got three sisters. All of them got Alzheimer's and from quite young until until older. So we've kind of been sitting, waiting, watching my father. He's in his 80s now and he's got early, you know, but he's in his 80s did quite well. But I, because I've been testing my genes forever, I have known I had the APOE34. And because of my family history, and before I started understanding really functional medicine and systems biology, had this idea because I was carrying this 3-4 and a family history that my journey was set, that that would be my future, you know. And when I started studying the genetics of it, and understanding your work and understanding how different biochemical pathways will contribute exactly, as you say, whether it's hormones, detoxification, inflammation, I started understanding that this one gene that I had kind of attached myself to as my story for my health journey actually was just one tiny little part of the story. And when I started looking at all my other genetics, and in fact, when I looked at my cognitive decline pathway, my scoring was actually very low because mm. I didn't have the other gene variants that were contributing. Plus, I exercise, I eat well, 
I swim in cold ocean water most days a week. So, and I realized that I had given myself a story about Alzheimer's, like most of the world had, because I'd attached to that narrative of family history, APOE, but actually my story was completely different. So I just wanted to share that. And that's why I'm so passionate about this idea that there's these multiple conversations that need to be had around Alzheimer's. Well, you know, it's interesting. You should take a little piece of what you just said and send that to apoe4.info because there is the website, apoe4.info. There are 3,500 people plus who have APOE4. And so many of them, when they find out that they have it, they're all depressed. Oh my God, I'm going to get Alzheimer's. What you've just said is the opposite. No, maybe not. And, And so that's only one tiny piece. And for them to understand that, would give them hope. It would make them feel much, much better. But I want to come back to something you said, because I'm really fascinated by this idea of, you know, one gene versus the polygenic effects and versus the biochemical effects. So I'm sure you remember this paper, but one of the things that was most fascinating to me was the story about BRCA1. And you remember where BRCA1 is a huge risk factor genetically today. But the big surprise was when they went back to 50, 60, 70 years ago and looked at samples and then looked at what was the fate of those people, it turned out that BRCA1 was not much of a risk factor. So the same genetics acted differently just a few decades ago than it acts now, really telling you that the gene hasn't changed, but something else has changed. And so, as you say, you've got to take it in context, not out of context. Now, I'm sure you're also looking at your Tom 40 and all that sort of stuff and, you know, other things that impact this. But as you said, there are, you know, it's about so many different pieces. And again, you can say the same thing for the treatment. You can argue, okay, for the future, what we want to do is CRISPR for, you know, 1700 genes to change all that. But who knows what would happen? There could be all sorts of side effects. Or you can do the right things for your biochemistry early on and you never have to worry. And that's where I think things are headed, that people within the next generation will simply not worry about this disease. And interestingly, 20th century was the century in which we conquered infectious diseases. They used to be killing almost everybody. You know, TB, no longer a big issue. Neurosyphilis, no longer a big issue. Dying of polio, no longer a big issue, and on and on. My argument is the 21st century is when we will conquer this separate thing, which is the non-communicable complex chronic illnesses. This will be the century when we conquer Alzheimer's, lupus, Parkinson's, you know, all of these, because the genetics plus the biochemistry will give us profiles for each of these. And we will know how to target those profiles at an organismal level. This is all possible now. It's just that people haven't been convinced yet that this is what we need to do. And so people will keep working on, let's get an antibody and remove your amyloid. Oh, my gosh. It just doesn't make biological sense. And, of course, it has failed in clinical trial after clinical trial. Time after time after time. And every drug, same thing, that there is the idea that there's a single drug or a single treatment or a single, I mean, that's just indicative of the healthcare system per se, you know, is that we don't want to do the work, you know, we don't want to get up in the morning and make the, and I always say, you know, like everything about health is, is a macro decision. 
every micro decision we make every minute of the day, 24 hours a day, 365 a day is determinant of health. And those decisions are generated by our understanding of our biochemistry, our genetics, yeah. as and the work you do, and being guided by programs like yours to say, you know, these micro decisions are going to change. And, you know, the reality is when there's an acceptance that the work has to be done and this disease concept is not real, then we're going to see some amazing change happen. Well, the other thing is, it's so interesting to me, you mentioned the healthcare system, but that is impacted by the infrastructure that is set up by companies making billions of dollars. So what happened is so interesting to me that we all look back and we say, oh my God, how did the opioid scandal happen? How could it be that people were selling these opioids and they were actually pushing the doctors to get them? They were, I mean, all these things, you look back and you say, this can't be. The exact same thing is happening in Alzheimer's today. We've got companies that are developing multi-multi-billion dollar drugs, charging massive amounts, and then they pay. So, for example, the Alzheimer's Association was paid by Biogen. Uh, to, you know, so they then say, oh, we think this is a good drug. Well, wait a minute. All of the experts who were on the FDA expert panel said it's not a good drug. It should not be approved. But of course, all the consultants that are paid off say it's a good drug. So there's this incredible coercion. There's this infrastructure built by finance and politics that pushes this and even pushes it into academics. So the academicians stand up and say, no, this is the way we have to go and write op-eds about it. And, and, and this, this entire coercive infrastructure that then prevents the development of real progress in this area where there's so much need. So what do you think is a tipping point for this? Because, you know, obviously you and I live in this functional integrative world where we all drink the same Kool-Aid and we, we, know, we know that understanding biochemistry and dysfunction and upstream and starting fixing those is going to help this downstream concept. So we you know, there's a couple of hundred thousand of us who understand this, but where do you think the tipping point comes? Well, you say Alzheimer's is optional. That means you need the buy-in of the public, the buy-in of the general consumer. Where do you think the tipping point, what brings us to that tipping point where we can get away from the single drug solution that you're describing to really take ownership and responsibility for our behavior around eradicating Alzheimer's? Yeah, well, you know, I hate to be cynical, but the tipping point is when someone figures out how to make a lot of money and then they will put the money into advertising and people will begin to change the way they think about this. I mean, I, again, I hate to be that cynical, but that's what happens most of the time. I'm waiting for a drug company to figure out that, hey, our drug will work much better when we have a functional medicine or precision medicine sort of approach around it that actually supports this. Nobody seems, other than, as you said, you know, the, the people who are thinking in this, who have drunk the Kool-Aid and who are seeing that this is the way to go, they're the ones who say, look, we're interested in the best outcomes, not in developing a multi-billion dollar drug. But there's been no advertisement. There's been no change of our thoughts. It's been, it's been, you know, as you know, it's been really enlightening to hear the discussions around the pandemic. 
even something as simple as a little virus, a little RNA virus, where, which we kind of understand fairly well. We have sequence, we have variants, we have vaccines. Even that, there's such a polarization mm -hmm. with these various arguments about antivirals and which way we should go and should you get vaccinated or not. So something that's much more complex, like cognitive decline, there's going to be a lot of discussion back and forth. But I do think the tipping point is going to be when someone figures out that, hey, they can actually advertise this to the world, get people to start changing their minds. And to be a little less cynical, I think when enough clinical trials are published to show that, yes, we can really get good results with this. And most importantly, we can get sustainable results. And that's actually been the most exciting thing to me. We have people now who started in 2012. So they're now over nine years on the protocol where you know they would be in a nursing home or worse at this point. And they're doing very, very well because when you change network function, you put the brain into a state where it is no longer in decline. Whereas with the medication, you simply give this little bump up and then you go right back to declining again. So I think that that's going to be very helpful. It's easy to be cynical, but I really do want to end on a positive note because when I yeah. think when I started my work 20 years ago and started studying, you know, I started off as a dietitian and then studied genetics. Mm. Alzheimer's was Alzheimer's. It was set in stone. There was absolutely nothing. I mean, nothing. And I know there are many, many doctors. I've seen it with my mother's oh. friends who have gone to see someone and they said, take some B vitamins and good luck and get your affairs in order. That's what they said. Yep. Get yep. your affairs in order. And this was last year. Yeah. So, uh, you know, once I, nothing's changed. And that was the world that I was kind of studying in. And that was the world I came into. But on the other hand, your work, the kind of book that you just published is definitely changing the paradigm, changing the challenge where there's these conversations that are happening. And if we fast forward 20 years and we continue changing the thinking around Alzheimer's as fast as we have over the last five to 10 years, I really do think that there is hope. I mean, it's even the same way we thought that diabetes was this kind of single entity. And now we understand, you know, so, or a heart attack or the same thing that we had these kind of single disease points that we now understand the complexity of. So I really do believe that in the next decade, with the kind of work that you're doing, the clinical trials you're doing, publishing books with real stories about real people that can inspire. And we can give tools. You know, we can have genetic tests and cognitive tests where we can really show change and give insights that the next 10 years really will be fundamental in shifting the way we think about cognitive decline. And I'm, on a personal level, very pleased to be working in this space at the time that I'm working in this space. Because for yeah. me, this has also been extremely personal. You know, people always have like one dreaded almost condition that, and, and it's always been Alzheimer's for me. And now, exactly as we said, like I've realized this is not my narrative. I yeah. make decisions every <laughs> single day to improve my cognitive function. And I think that that story will spread. Yeah, and as you said, you know, let's end on a positive note. And so I think this is the most exciting time in history to be working on neurodegenerative diseases. Up until now, these have been completely untreatable terminal illnesses, whether you're talking about Alzheimer's or ALS or Lewy body or frontotemporal dementia, on and on and on. And I believe strongly that the same approach, of course, modified for the different genetics and biochemistry of each one of these, but the same fundamental idea 
that you have a chronic excess of demand over supply for these subsystems. And you can see it in each subsystem, whether you're talking about Parkinson's or Lewy body or Alzheimer's or what have you, will make it so that these will all be preventable and treatable illnesses, that this next generation will be the first generation not to fear these illnesses, that we will, during the 21st century, pretty much eradicate, just as we eradicated smallpox and polio, we will eradicate these by now understanding. We're, we're now looking at whole genomes and whole organisms and whole you know, sets of biochemical pathways, as opposed to just this old idea where medicine was not very scientific. As you know, you lose use a little tincture of this, a little tincture of that, and maybe they might get better. But now we see that you don't get better with these neurodegenerative diseases. So I do think this is the most exciting time for these diseases. We're seeing case after case after case of improvement. And it's a matter now of simply extending these and extrapolating to these various others. We're actually involved in something called the ARC project now, just as the ARC was two by two by two. Yeah. Um, we're looking at small numbers of people. And in fact, we'd love to do it with your genetics as well. Yeah. Small numbers of people who are early on in each degenerative disease and then look to see, it. can we understand what's driving this phenomenon? So the first ones we're looking at are people with macular degeneration. It's another mm-hmm. poorly treatable disease. Again, everything is completely backwards. You wait for it to be really late and you get wet macular degeneration. And then you prevent the very thing that your eye is trying to do to save itself. Oh my gosh. So again, doing the right things, I think we have a much better idea. So yes, I think there's every reason to end on a very positive note. Excellent. And I have absolutely loved talking to you. I'm looking forward to the time where we're at the same conference and I'm going to come and introduce myself in person. I've Great. really, really, it's, it's, been a, it's been a great honor. Thank you so much. I feel thank like you. I've been waiting for this conversation for a very long time. Great so to talk to you. Thank you, Dr. Bredesen. Great to speak thank to you. Thank you, Dr. Jaffe. Bye. I look forward to further discussion. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast, brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.